Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky Show bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and of course, the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. All right, we'll do. Ben Jarofsky here. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It is Tuesday, September 10th, 2019. Of course, you could be listening to this anytime because it's a podcast. You know the game by now. And as we always do on bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show, I asked uh, my distinguished guests, in this case, guest, to introduce herself. So, guest, bonus guest, Introduce yourself and give yourself a great introduction, all right? <laughs> okay, all, all right. right. Um, I'm Madeline Ihejerica, and I am a urban affairs reporter and columnist with the Chicago Sun-Times. I'm also president of the National Association of Black Journalists Chicago Chapter and president of the Chicago Journalists Association. All right, very good. So she has a lot of titles she brings. <laughs> uh, she's an outstanding writer for my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. I've been bugging her to come on my show for a while. I thought we had cut a deal a little Uh-oh, while ago. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> but it was too far for her to drive. Now that I'm, I'm, I have my little studio here in the bright one, no excuse, Marlon. So uh, None whatsoever. Uh, none whatsoever. All right. So tell folks a little bit about yourself. Uh, and part of the reason I'm so intrigued with your story uh, is that you have like what I might call a circuitous path uh, <laughs> to get to this spot where you are, where you're distinguished columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times yeah. and the head of um, the National Association of Black Journalists in Chicago, et cetera. So talk about your the, how you got here. Well, you know, Ben, um, as we were talking about before the podcast started, um, I am a, um, I'm a refugee and I'm an immigrant. Um, so uh, my family came here as refugees of the Nigerian Biafran War, and we landed at O'Hare Airport on July 9, 19, on June 9, 1969, with the clothes on our backs. And uh, my father had been studying at Northwestern University when the war broke out, and for two and a half years, neither my mother nor my father knew if the other were alive or dead. And through the help of five couples on the North Shore, led by a dean at Kellogg School of Management, where my father was attending. Um, they set off on the most heroic of, um, of feats to first locate my family in the midst of a raging war and to bring us out to the United States. Um, so from June of 1969, we settled on the near south side in a urban renewal community called South Commons mm-hmm. that had just recently opened. We lived there, um, t- uh, all of my former years and then we moved to Downers Grove and I attended Downers Grove South High School and uh, spent the uh, my older my later years in the um, southwest suburbs all right now you're galloping past a lot of interesting <laughs> things so let's just go back a little bit and take it point by point first of all 1969 you yes. show up yes you're a baby yeah uh, I, I I would say if I'm doing a cr- uh, quick math count you're about five or four exactly. Exactly, like five. Yeah, five years old. And uh, God, everybody's younger than me. Okay, can I just <laughs> yeah, say right. that? Wherever I go, I don't people, feel it. I tell man, you that. 1969, I was already 13 years old. I was following the Cubs. All right. So, uh, 1969, you show up in Chicago. So, how many kids are there that just showed up? So, there were six kids when my father left, and he didn't know my mom was pregnant. Well, there were five kids when he left, and she, he didn't know she was pregnant with the six. So six of us landed at O'Hare. Oh, my God. And yeah. so your parents were separated when they were in Nigeria. Yeah. And then they found each other, and they came to this country. They came to Chicago, and your dad... Uh, selected Chicago because he'd already been a student at, at Northwestern. Am I getting this right? So, so almost. So, Dad was studying at Northwestern University as a foreign exchange student. The war broke out. He had left Mom with the kids in Nigeria to come and take advantage of the scholarship. 
I see. So he was here. The war separates them. He can't return home. And it was then his dean and four other families who ah, helped I see. find his family. So do you have any memories of life in Nigeria from in those late 60s before you came to uh, O'Hare, flew into O'Hare? You know, Ben, I have nothing but bad memories. Um, I have flashes of war. Um, the war began in 1967. I was born in 1964. So, and we came out in 1969. So my memories are mostly of bodies, dead bodies in the road, um, of, uh, um, Airplanes flying overhead, of ducking for cover when bombs were being dropped, of bombs exploding around me, um, of taking cover in a bunker, and um, of my mother with her finger over her mouth saying, shh, as soldiers went by so they wouldn't find us and, and hurt us. Um, I have memories of starving because it was the first war um, and the first time in history that famine or rather starvation was used mm -hmm. as a tool of mass destruction. So I have mostly bad memories. And uh, are these, me these are memories, actual memories that you have, or are these reinforced by things that you've uh, gone back and read and studied about uh, what right. went out? So I have only flashes, which mm -hmm. is the way I always describe them. Um, if I start to think back, they just, they pass as, as flashes of memories. I don't have any long strung together memories, just flashes. Yeah. I can, I mean, just speaking for myself, uh, I have really almost no memories. Oh my God, this is uh, I know I got a few years on you, but I like from time before I was 10, it's amazing how it's just sort of like life started. Well, yeah, on. yeah. You don't, you don't remember much. It's just pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of us, right. Yeah. At that age, I guess. So for me, and maybe see if the, if you can relate to this. Uh, I used to live in Rhode Island when I was young with my family, and then we moved to Evanston when I was almost eleven. Yeah. And I always tell people, life began for me when I moved to Evanston. <laughs> and for some reason, Evanston, I just that's always tell people Evanston's my hometown. Even yeah. though I haven't lived there in years, but I still think of it as my hometown. Yeah, because it's like that's where life clicked on. And yeah. I, yeah. Uh, do you have a similar thing like life well, clicked yeah. on for you? Life clicked on in South Commons. South Commons is where I remember life beginning. I mean, those were formative years from age five to 13. That's when everything happens. That's when you become who you are. That's when you start to develop your view of the world. So I don't remember anything in terms of my life before age five. Well, let's talk about South Commons. Uh, you just wrote a story about it. We'll get into it in your uh, uh, memories of South Commons. Now, South Commons is a very significant complex in the history of the city of Chicago. Yeah. And I know you could go on about it. I'll just tell folks <laughs> it's on the near South Side in the Bronzeville area, yeah. and it was built uh, and with all the idealism that you could imagine right. from and post, uh, it was like the era after uh, Martin Luther King had killed the right. riots, the That's city right. even more segregated That's than it is right. today. Well, maybe not more segregated. Most blacks lived in the black belt. Mm-hmm. And the, the notion with South Commons is mm -hmm. that with proper planning, yes. you could get uh, white people and black people to yes, live, to live together. Uh, and together. And poor people and wealthy people yes. to live together. Right, because there were some market homes yes. that people actually owned, and then there was uh, rentals. Exactly. And uh, so how did your family find your way to South Commons? Well, it was the families on the North Shore who helped bring us out. And so when we first landed, they um, allowed us to stay at the home of his uh, dean uh, in Northbrook. And they cleared out their home for us and let us stay there while they began to look for a place for us. Mm -hmm. And so it was through these professors and their contacts who were told about South Commons. Let's just think about this for a moment. You went from Nigeria right. to Northbrook right. to South Commons. <laughs> a life is, you know, I thought it was a big deal when I went from Rhode Island to Evanston. I know. Talk about it. <laughs> Although that was kind of radical. Culture shock uh, culture on many shock levels. On many yeah. levels, I could tell you. But all right. So uh, South Commons in those days. So you have blacks and whites living there. Right. Now you're not really, quote unquote, black because uh -huh. you're from Africa. Right. So how did people experience you? Like how did black kids right. view you back in 1969? Well, in 1969, they made fun of us. So um, it's interesting growing up as, um, or rather coming in as a young immigrant kid from um, a predominantly, um, uh, uh, from a predominant, na a nation of predominantly people of color um, to land amongst a um, land in a nation where you have people of 
color and 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 other mainstream and other ethnicities. Um, so I came from a monolithic community, and now I come to this you know uh, heterogeneous community in terms of ethnicity and color. And I'm a I'm not accepted by either one. So I arrive, and what I remember from age five to about age seven was being miserable and being made fun of. I talked funny. I, I had a funny accent. I, um, uh, I wore funny clothes. Um, and oh, um, are, is it really true that you guys uh, swing from trees? And these are black kids asking me. That's what they saw on TV. That's what America portrayed Africa as. So their perspectives were, you know, people swinging from trees, Tarzan. That's all they knew about Africa. And we were we were aghast. Um, and so um, so you had the black kids making fun of you. And of course, you had the white kids making fun of you. Now, what would the white kids say to you? The white kids were saying the same thing about Tarzan. You guys swing on swing from trees. Yeah. And um, and, and yeah, you talk funny. These yeah. are white kids in South Commons? Yeah. And in, in, in when we first arrived, yeah. when we first arrived from age five to seven, your accent is beginning to What was disappear. your accent? Um, I had a very strong Nigerian accent. It's gone now. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have it? Could you bring it back if you wanted to? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Was it like a, a English accent? Do you have like a British? It's a British it? accent. Yeah. Because we were a colonial, British colonial yes. nation. So uh, my English was very British, very as the as the white kids used to say, you talk so proper. The white kids would say oh, that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You talk so proper. And the black kids, too. Yeah. So would the white kids and the black kids be together? They like unite no. to torment? The, the- no. And it, it would just be, you know, um, random, any kid. But, you know, kids are cruel, Ben. Mm-hmm. From age five to age seven. By age seven, my accent was gone. You know, I could, or rather, let's say, I could, I could squash it. Yeah. I learned to adjust. Yeah. I learned to, 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 to take cover, to protect myself. And so I did not speak with the accent. By age seven, I was like one of the kids. So what kind of accent did you have? Uh, well, what, after the accent disappeared yeah. or before? Uh, a- after the accent disappeared. After the accent disappeared, I could talk to you like this. And then the other thing, too, is that as a young kid from somewhere else feeling like they don't fit in, when I was talking with the black kids, I could talk like, what's up? When I was talking to the white kids, I would be like, hey, what do you want to do after school? <laughs> yeah. I hear so, that. you know, that's what kids do. They learn to yeah. fit in. Hey, could you go back to an African accent if you're just talking to your brothers and sisters? Yeah. If you wanted to. If I wanted to. Did you, how did your parents react to these changing accents? My parents, you, you, as kids, you keep it from your parents because my parents were insistent that we maintain our Nigerian heritage. Yeah. In my home, the only language we spoke was Igbo. My parents refused to speak English to us. In my home, the only food we ate was Nigerian. My parents did not want us to get accustomed to the American culture. So in my home, I was a different person. And as soon as I walked out the door, I tried to, I became a chameleon. I tried to fit in. So Marlon, how many languages do you speak right now? Right now I speak Igbo, English, and French. You speak French? Well, I took four years in high school and four years in college. You know, that kind of French. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not like by any means. Like if I went to France, they'd be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Uh, and so, and, and did were there a moment come where you officially uh, dropped, as far as people were looking at you, your African identity and just became a Chicago American. black kid? Yeah. Um, I would say, unfortunately, not unfortunately, fortunately, as I look back now, it was fortunate because my parents, they, you know, you look back and you, you thought it was such a, a burden, what your parents did to you, making you, forcing you to maintain, you know, certain, certain cultures, certain beliefs, certain practices. Um, but as you get older, you realize, oh my God, thank God for them. Thank God they did that because it's who I am now. Um, so I will say that during those formative years in South Commons, um, uh, as the neighborhood changed and became predominantly black, um, uh, outside, I was just another black kid. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. We, now, before we go to South Commons, was your dad teaching at Northwestern at this time? No, he was studying at Northwestern when we first got here. So he got his degree at Kellogg School of Management and Finance, and he became a certified public accountant. So he was working as a CPA. I got you here in the city here of Chicago. In the city. Did your mom work as and well? And my mom, my mom held like, gosh, you know, a thousand jobs. There were seven of us. The, another kid got born when we got here. Um, so there were seven kids. So my mom worked as a waitress. My mom scrubbed floors at night. Um, my mom waitressed. She um, she sewed clothes. She took in other people's children. My mom basically did whatever it took, whatever she could find to help my dad yeah. care for the kids until she made her own way and finally realized she could be an entrepreneur and do what she used to do in Nigeria, which was she was a seamstress. And she started sewing for others. And very soon she opened up her own store in um, Long Grove, which is uh, 18th in Michigan. Wow. So your mom had her own, was it a, like a, an Africa? Yeah, it was during the, it was in the height of the seventies, uh, black power movement when everyone wanted daishikis. <laughs> so mom was importing yeah. all these, um, African materials. She was selling daishikis and African goods and statues. And she had a booming business. Yeah. Is she went from right? scrubbing floors to running wow. her own business. Now, how long did she run that business? Um, her business, she went from, she, she exploded so, so much that she moved her business to the Stevenson building on State Street. Uh, It's that building right next to Macy's. Oh, yeah. So mom was located downtown Chicago. Her company was so big. Um, So she ran that company for about about seven, eight years. Did you ever work for her? Yeah. Well, after school, we'd all walk downtown or we'd walk to 18th and Michigan and we'd just kind of hang out at the store. Do you know how to sew? Um, She tried to teach us. We all ran away. (laughs) You were too American. And, and that's what she said. Yeah. Oh, how did I know? Uh, and uh, does your mom still have that business? No, no. Um, when we moved to Downers Grove, she became a, um, a traveling. She took her business. It became a traveling business where she would do festivals and um, uh, expos and that kind of thing. So she was traveling all over the country. She just at that point, by the time we moved to Downers Grove, um, she didn't. There was no market for African goods in Downers Grove yeah, for her to I open up a say, shop. Yeah, maybe today, maybe. I don't know. Downers Grove. We'll talk about that going to Downers Grove. What a thought. Uh, so, all right. Now, what, what you just described is so, um, I, I, I hate these were typical, but it's just, it's, it's such an immigrant story. Yeah. And one of my favorite themes, I told you just before we went in the air, I go on and on about this is the demonization of immigrants right. in this country, in this current era with this current president. Yeah. And it, I, I don't understand it. It's part of my bias living in Chicago. Yeah. Because to me, immigrants, 99.9% are like, can we have more? Chicago is a city of immigrants. I, I know. The and ethnicity. Yeah. You go to the restaurants I go yes. to, the stores it's I the go to. The best restaurants. <laughs> I, they work. So freaking hard. You and they know. believe the American dream. You got Trump now <laughs> trouncing. I I find it so despicable and I can't understand why people buy into it. Like people who live, I always say this, who live in South Dakota or North Dakota. What do you care? There's no immigrants anywhere near you. Yeah, right. You need immigrants. You're so... Is it worse, do you think, now than it was back in the day when you first moved here, when you were a baby immigrant just growing up here in the city of Chicago? Well, gosh, yes. You know, I mean, we're looking at the single largest number of displaced people globally since World War II. And this is absolutely, as you say, a a, a passion of mine. As a refugee, as an immigrant, I feel this very personally. You know, there are 68 million people who are refugees and cannot return home today in this world. And so where are they supposed to go? If this world as a globe does not recognize that they have, everyone has to do something, everyone has to do their part, where are 68 million people supposed to go? Because their homes are destroyed by war. Their homes are destroyed by natural disasters. If we all throw up our our borders and say, no, you can't come in, where do these people go? And, you know, I think about it and I reflect on it. If America had said no, if America had said build a wall in 1969, Two million of my Igbo tribe died of starvation or massacre in the Biafran War. I was blessed. America said yes. America let me in. And so, no, I don't understand this demonization of refugees. I do not understand the demonization of immigrants, especially when I look back and I say, okay, every 
immigrant wave has been demonized or looked upon as, you know, as, as, as intruders and treated badly and considered, you know, strange. They ate strange foods. They talk strange. I'm talking about the Italian wave of immigrants. I'm talking about the Jewish wave of immigrants. I'm talking about the Polish wave of immigrants. So every wave has been treated that way until they immersed within the American culture. And you know what? They are the same people today saying no immigrants. What is that all about? It's insanity, especially you just mentioned Jewish immigrants. Uh, the the leading theorist, if you can call him that, in the Donald Trump White House is a, a Jewish American in terms of immigration, Stephen Miller. This yeah, we all know. And uh, so, yeah, I it's I hear you. I I like to think that this is just a particular low point and will and it will pass. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's been it's it's a, it's a very scary time on this. It front. is. It but, is. But when I again when I hear stories like your story and there's literally hundreds of people I've interviewed down through the years modeling yeah. who are immigrants yeah. uh, come to this country. All they do is work hard. Yeah. All they do is raise their kids yeah. and uh, see them demonized by Donald Trump and the Republican party. I just, it's something that's really difficult for me to take. Yeah. All right. Let's go back in time to 1969. <laughs> you wrote a, a great uh, story in uh, the sun times. Uh, it ran about, about a week or two ago, I think. That's when I really said, I got to reach out to her, get her on the show. I don't care how far she has to walk to get here. Uh, <laughs> across the hall. Across the hall. Uh, and it talked about Jill Soloway. It was very funny and very moving. Uh, Jill Soloway, of course, is a, um, a major producer in, in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, well, you tell your own story. So uh, Jill Soloway is um, uh, uh, now a now famous um, Hollywood creator, director, um, she is, of course, the uh, creator of Transparent, um, which uh, was the groundbreaking Amazon series about a uh, transgender, um, a, a man, uh, a husband who, um, a Jewish husband, no less, who um, comes out as transgender, um, and uh, and so and their journey and 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 just uh, how the whole family is impacted by that, and how each family member eventually begins to question and explore their own gender. So she wants two Emmys for this and, and a Golden Globe and, and, and just really crashed through the glass ceiling of Hollywood um, as a director creator. Um, so Jill, of course, um, she's amazing and, and accomplished and famous. But at one time, she was just the pesky little sister of my best friend. And your best friend is? Faith Soloway, her older sister, who yeah. was her older sister. And the mom of the whole thing is, is Elaine. Elaine, who everyone knows in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. The famous author and activist. Yeah. yeah. The great yeah. Elaine Soloway. The great Elaine So Soloway. when you were a kid, follow me on this. You fly in from Nigeria. They, they You spend a little time in Northbrook. Then they schlep <laughs> you down to South Commons. Right. Where was South Commons about? 27th in Indiana. Thank you. 27th yeah. in Indiana. Right on time. She comes in with that. Where you meet Faith Soloway. Who lived at 27th in Michigan. So you're five-year-old. You're five, six at this time. Yeah. So what was that meeting like? Do you remember? where you were? Yeah, I met Faith in uh, first grade at um, South Common School, and it was the school that her mom championed, and it was the school that was at the center of the success of South Commons. Um, because when the school uh, uh, floundered and the Chicago Public Schools um, refused to fund it and, and to support it, uh, white folks began to move, and the white flight that uh, the South Commons Urban Renewal Community had sought to prevent eventually happened. So that all began when the With CPS the and it's in uh, yep. benevolent uh, interest. Typical, yep, yep. Typical CPS, CPS bureaucracy. bureaucracy. Yes, no, we decisions. know what's good. Right, right, right. And Elaine Soloway <laughs> must have been going oh, out of her she mind. she fought like a, oh my God, she fought like the devil for that school. She fought like the devil for integration. And um, she, you know, she she was just um, the voice that everyone remembered. She had a newsletter that she was constantly advocating and, and railing against the bureaucracy um, and trying to get people to, to come downtown and, and, and support the school and fight for the school. And eventually she and other supporters lost their fight. But uh, I met Faith in first grade at uh -huh. South Common School. 
And it was a very integrated school, and there were so many other ethnicities there. And uh, Faith and I became besties, and we used to hang out at each other's houses for several years. Now, she presumably was not one of the kids who made fun of your accent. No, Faith did not make fun of my accent. Other kids did, but not Faith. And uh, so what did you guys bond on? Like, how did a little kid from Nigeria Mm. bond with a little girl, a Jewish girl from the (laughs) near south side of Chicago? You know, I I couldn't even tell you. It's just, you know, imagine five and six-year-olds, and, uh, you know, what, what draws kids? I was watching a video yesterday. I don't know if you you've seen this video that's gone viral. It's a little black toddler and a little white toddler and they're walking down a New York street and they see each other and they start running towards each other and they just hug. And this video went viral yesterday. Yeah. Everyone was talking about it. Yeah. And what it shows is the power of friendship when there is no acknowledgement of race and other differences, yeah. right? So I think about that video, I think of me and Faith. You know, what What draws kids together? We don't know that you're, a kid doesn't know you're white, a kid doesn't know you're black. They just know, hey, you wanna sit with me at lunchtime? You wanna yeah. play hopscotch? <laughs> you know, and we just, we hopscotch together. And next thing, it's like, you wanna come to my house after school? Yeah, why not? So did you call her Mrs. Soloway when you met Elaine? I called her Mrs. Soloway. My parents were very strict on politeness, yeah. Nigerian, African culture was Mrs. There was no Elaine. She would say, call me Elaine. No, my mom would kill me if I called you Elaine. Yeah, yeah. And so what did Faith call your parents? Uh, Faith called my parents Mr. and Mrs. Ihejerika. Yeah, she got that Yeah, she got that. Yeah, yeah. Well, she probably called them Mrs. I for all I know. I think a lot of the kids did. Yeah, or Mrs. E, whatever. Uh, And uh, so like, what would you, do you can recall like what music or shows you were watching together back in those days? Oh, gosh. 1971. I could not tell you. I don't remember. I remember watching, well, I remember at night sometimes watching Creature Feature oh, yeah. on the occasional evening we got to, that I got to hang out there after, at their house for dinner and um, we'd watch something like that. Um, I remember in my house on Sundays watching, uh, uh, what's it, Fraser Thomas? Yeah. Fraser Thomas? Goose. Garfield Goose, that yeah. whole thing. But I can't remember a lot of the show. So, like, so you'd be out there with Faith yeah. and little Jill would come and you'd be like, Shut up, Jill. Right. <laughs> and Jill, we'd be like, you know, we're going to walk up to the corner store. To the uh, There was a Jewels on the corner. and Or we're going to go get some ice cream or something. And she's like, I want to go. It's like, oh. <laughs> we got to take your little sister. Uh, shut up, Jill. Just, just don't breathe. Uh, yeah, it came across. It was very funny, uh, the story you did, the little Soloway kids. And so eventually, in its uh, enlightenment, the Chicago Public Schools pulled the plug on South Commons. Do you remember where that was? It was right there in the middle of the South Commons. So I would say, like, uh, it was at 27th and... Uh, so we were Indiana. I don't know what that cross street is. Yeah, I know it, but yeah. around there. So yeah. they said, all right, we're closing South Common School. Yeah. So where kids were, tra- do you remember the school you were, would have to go and to? And the thing about it is the reason the white families were leaving and the wealthy black families were leaving because the only other school was a school smack dead in the middle of the projects. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the name of it? South Commons Elementary. Yeah. And South Commons School. No, no, did I say South Commons? I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, uh, uh. Oh gosh, South South Commons. Uh, I can't remember. Now. What? Yeah. A- anyway. anyway, South Commons was established as a branch yeah. of this school yeah. that was in the middle of the I projects. Get you. And so it's a typical thing in the city of Chicago. Whatever reason, and Lord knows what was driving the bureaucrats at Chicago Public Schools, yeah. uh, motivated them to close that school. Yeah. They either didn't care, right, or didn't realize the impact it would have on the great social integration Ex- experiment exactly. that was going on. Because exactly. nobody cares about integration. No. I hate to say that. You no, they don't. They don't. And and they were supposed to add a grade. The school started up to fourth grade and they were supposed to add a grade every year um, to keep the families there. And they refused. They did not. And, and so at so, that point, once the kids reached the, the last grade, the families were not sending them to the project. So do you remember, I know that in your article, you said that the Soloway girls were some of the last white people yeah. hanging around South yeah. Commons. Yeah. yeah, Elaine kept her family there a long time after a long time after most of the white families with children had moved out. Well, my point might just undoubtable favorite moment in that story. It's a great story. I urge everybody to go find it. My beloved bright one, go to the, uh, uh, you could find on the internet. Suntimes, Chicago.suntimes.com. Search under Maudlin E. Hedgerica author, or just Google Jill Soloway. Okay. Suntimes. I mean, 
I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> this lady is so good at social media. Uh, can I tell you that, folks? Uh, and we're Facebook living this thing as we speak. That's right. Um, but anyway, my favorite part about it is when Jill Soloway is reminiscing about that moment that occurs. Every white kid knows about this who's been through integration. Right. When all the other white kids leave and you're like right. the last white kid there. Right. And I'm not really white. Right. Uh, talking. I just look white, but really I'm black. Okay. Uh, and uh, so it's a great moment. Every white kid uh, should have to go through a moment like that. And you get a little sense of what the world's like. Uh, but Jill Soloway is reminiscing about the little shows that they put on. And they're singing Young, Gifted, and Black. Right. Which I would laugh it out loud because that was sung in every ins- assembly That's right. modeling back That's in the right. day. That's right. I remember those. Young, to gifted. be young, gifted, and black. And that's a fact. I like that little And Jill image. said, yeah. and you couldn't tell us we weren't young, gifted, yeah, and black. black. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, you know, young and the gifted part. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, I love that. She's singing young, gifted, and that's black. That's right. That's right. Uh, but anyway, all dreams must come to an end. Yeah. Uh, so when you look back on that, and uh, I know I have my opinions about uh, our, our country's utter indifference to integration, but right. I've seen it repeated time and time, modeling uh, the, the city of Chicago, uh, just uh, pulling the plug on integration. Just, what is it? People just don't want integration? Is that it? They just don't want to live together? Is that, the, is that the situation? I don't know what it is. You know, as a nation, we're just so, we're so divided. We're so fragmented. Nobody wants to live with the other. You know, we're so consumed with the otherization of each other. You know, um, I, I don't know what's happened. Differences used to be something to be appreciated, and they should still be something to be appreciated. Um, but now, you know, we, we look at differences as something to keep us apart. You know, you stay on your side of the country, I'll stay on my side of the country. Or you stay on your side of the city, I'll stay on my side of the city. Um, it's just become ingrained in our in, in our American culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, and it's uh, it, it seems like politicians are afraid to confront it. Of course they are, you because know. the people who send them are the homogenous community they come from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a very good point, and it's really the case here in the city of Chicago. It's so tribalistic. Do you remember when you uh, uh, you and Faith went your opposite directions? Do you remember when that happened? Yeah, um, we probably drifted apart um, uh, maybe about age 11 or so. Yeah, um, so, you know, and, and about two years after that, uh, uh, her family moved out and my family moved out. We all moved out. The two families moved out in 1977, the same year. Um, and, uh, you know, as the story uh, tells, um, uh, Jill is currently working on a documentary about South Commons and the urban experiment that it was. Um, and so every year there's a reunion of those who lived through those urban renewal years there. And, um, and, and we come back together to celebrate the fact that at one time we loved each other's differences, you know, black, white, poor, wealthy, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so that's why we're still together to these, to this time. And she's doing a documentary on it. So people should watch for it. It's coming soon. Uh, and, uh, so your family, uh, uh the Salawas, I believe moved to the North side. Yep. Uh, th- I, th- I want to say they went to Lane Tech, the girls. They did. The girls went uh, to Lane, went to Lane Tech. Tech. And, yeah. uh, so where did and your we moved go? to Downers Grove. Now, Okay, nothing wrong with Downers Grove. Okay, I'm not. So all you Downers Groveians or whatever you're called, uh, don't call and yell yeah, at them. Yeah, yeah, yell at me. Love Downers Grove as, ne- as much as the next person. But why? Of all the places in the world you could move to, did you go to Downers Grove? Well, you know, my parents. Um, that's where they found a little community um, right uh, next to Downers. Downers Grove was expanding, and um, a little community right next door was uh, uh, was. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, was incorporated, you know, um, on uh, vacant land. And uh, it was called Woodridge. And so it was fairly new. And um, and so because it was fairly new, the homes were, you know, all the little homes were affordable. And so as my parents began to look across the six-county metropolitan region, they found that this little community that had sprung up just outside, just kitty corner to um, Downers Grove, was the most affordable. 
And so you just slept on so out there. So next thing you know, they announced to us we are moving from South Commons to a community called Woodridge wow. uh, slash Downers Grove, and we all cried. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> crying just thinking about it. Were there any black people in Woodridge? We were the first black people within blocks, and within a few months of moving in, we had a brick thrown through our window. And we had go home N-word spray painted on our garage. And we had um, a burning um, uh, what looked like a cross on our lawn. So, um, And within a few years, as um, more people of color began to move in, there was a race riot at Downers Grove South. A race riot? Yeah. When you were there? Yeah. So this was the um, late 70s when all of the suburbs were beginning to see people of color moving out of the city and um, and, and looking for, um, you know, better schooling and, and uh, uh, you know, more open um, uh, landscapes. And so there were inc- racial incidents all over the metropolitan area. This is not new, what I'm describing. But today, when I talk about or when I write about that era, I lived it. Yeah, you went through it. Yeah. Uh, you graduated high school in 82? I graduated high school in 81. 81, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. you graduated early. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, a year so, early. A yeah. year early. Yeah. So uh, did you learn, did you find your way in Downers Grove or Woodridge? Did you eventually find your way or were you always... Uh, looking you had your eye on the road to get you out of there <laughs> i think that you know as as young people you get there and you feel completely out of place and now you've got the race issue um and remember you're talking about a kid who comes from a homogenous uh country into a um uh heterogeneous country um and an environment in south commons where uh, race isn't necessarily an issue because it's this urban renewal experiment. And then I go from there into a community where suddenly I'm confronted with race at age 13. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm this little kid from a, a homogenous community, I mean, country that doesn't even understand that why wouldn't someone like me because of the color of my skin? Mm-hmm. Uh, explain that to me again. Yeah. What is that all about? So race was an interesting concept for us as Nigerian children uh, to uh, digest um, in our later years. If we had had to confront it in the early 70s when we first moved here, it probably would have been easier, but we didn't have to confront it till in our teenage years, so it was very difficult. And um, you just learn to protect yourself and you learn to, as your immigrant parents say, you know, get that education because in our country, Education ain't free. Yeah. And so most immigrants who come to this country, they're going to avail themselves of every educational opportunity because no other country offers free education. Now, I'm presuming, and uh, correct me if my presumption is wrong, that your strong suits in high school would have been uh, English, history, and writing. That's it. How'd you know? How did I know? (laughs) I'm a visionary. Uh, And uh, uh, just just my guess, I guess. Uh, And so... And so I went to the University of Iowa looking to uh, um, become a writer in their famous creative writing workshop. So let me... Folks, let's just think about this trajectory. Let's start at the side. Nigeria, uh, Northbrook, right. South Commons, okay. Woodridge, which is not even Daughters Grove. It's like Woodridge. And now you're out in like a cornfield in Iowa. All places. Yeah. How, how did that go? That was a total culture shock. That was a total culture shock. Well, it's corn I mean, and everything. I, I, if, if I thought if I thought getting becoming adjusted to Woodridge and Downers Grove was difficult, oh my God. Yeah. You know, now I'm planted in the middle of cornfields. And uh, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Did you? I focused. Focus I focused on education. Wow. That's all I knew. You know, when you feel out of place, study. Did you have friends? Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I was all into. I I was a sorority girl. I I, I did the whole thing. I was oh, so very. Wasn't that bad. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I were you in a black sorority? Yeah. I was a member of Alpha. I am a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Alpha Woo-hoo! Kappa Alpha. <laughs> uh, Alpha Kappa. That's a wild sorority, as I heard. Uh, and uh, so. I don't know. Were you just looking just to get out as soon as you got in? Is that kind of how college um, was for you? Well, college was fun. You know, um, at first you're like, oh my God, where am I? And because of the environment, it was a very, very small black 
community. Yeah. So out of, um, uh, I can't even remember how many thousands of students there were, but there were like less than 200 African-American students. So by And so everyone knew everyone. Okay, so I was going to say, but this time it's, not, it's no longer an issue that you're African. Oh, you're no. Like by then, black, I'm an African-American. Like yeah. Exactly. You're an African-American. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. When did that, yeah. did that happen when you went to Iowa or did it happen when you were in Woodridge? It happened in Woodridge. Yeah. It happened in Woodridge. Because yeah. were no Africans anywhere near. No, no, no. And and by the time you're in high school, the last thing you want to do is accentuate your differences. Right. right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you're at Iowa, were there any Africans? No. Like no, real Africans? No, no. No not when I went. Okay. No, nope, not in the. Um, uh, let's see, not in the early eighties. Yeah, and I left Iowa in eighty five. Wow. So yeah. So you went from being an African girl mm -hmm. to a black girl. You got it. America, what African a country! African American. That's, yeah. that's that's America for you. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so then you came back to Chicago, went to Northwestern. Came back to Chicago, went to Northwestern, got my master's at Medill, and um, was lucky enough to do an internship. No, not lucky. I don't believe in luck. I was blessed to do an internship at the Sun-Times the summer of my uh, master's, and I was hired there as soon as so I So you've been at the bright master's. one ever since then? At first job out of school, and um, and I'm glad to be here. But I uh, left for five years to go work for Governor Edgar. How did I not know that? Are you Republican? <laughs> no, no. Um, I left to become a press secretary for the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services in 97. How did that happen? I did um, not know. I literally, literally did not know that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, everyone, um, you get to a point where you get the, the, the offer is right. The price was right. And, um, you know, I had been covering, uh, I'd found my passion was urban affairs and youth. And I had been covering DCFS for some time. And um, his office called me up one day and said, hey, you've been covering these issues. We'd love to have you on the other side. So now you're on the other side I'm and you're on dealing the other with side. reporters. What yeah. was that like? Oh, it was hell. It was hell because you walk that line. You know, you walk that line between you You got to tell the truth, but you also know what's going to kill you in the, in the paper tomorrow, you yeah. know? So it's it was very difficult because you, you're trying to convince and teach the people you work for that, yeah, you can't say that. That's a lie, <laughs> you know, or no, no, no. You kind of got to You got to You got to say it this way. No, no, we can't. We can't avoid it. It, it happened. The kid died under our watch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. That's right. And so you stayed, you were there. Two uh, years until he didn't run again. Oh, so you left with. I uh, left in 99 uh -huh. and uh, hung up my own shingles and started the Hedgerica Media and Communications Group. And for three years, I was um, doing media relations for politicians, members of the U.S. Congress, uh, Chicago City Council and Illinois legislature. So who are some of your clients? Well, I'll just leave it at this. My um, claim to fame during uh, those years, the three years I ran my own company was that I ran the uh, media campaign of um, uh, U.S. Representative Bobby Rush um, uh, against a very little known politician. Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Hussein Obama. And it was the only race that President Obama lost on his upward trajectory to the presidency. And have you ever had a conversation with him about this? I did. We had a private conversation one time. And I all it, it went something like, are we cool? Yeah. Yeah, we're cool. Uh, yeah. It, it's funny because uh, they, his roots uh, or his dad's roots are in Kenya. Right. And yours are in Nigeria. Right. And you find your way in Chicago <laughs> and you absolutely <laughs> annihilated him. When did that are we cool conversation take place? That happened, um, I would say, uh, oh, that happened by the time he had, he was a U.S. senator. So it happened years later. So he knew you. You were. Oh, the, he knew me. Yeah. He knew me because during that race, I was attacking him every other day. You know, um, uh, not him, his record. Um, and so uh, he knew who I was from that race, and um, he also knew who I was because uh, you know uh, his wife uh, was friends with some of my friends. So, um, and anyway, um, I had interviewed him and his wife at some point when I was a reporter. Mm. So we knew who each other was. So by the time he was a U.S. senator, many years later, I was worried that in my quest to cover him, um, that maybe he would remember. I see. And so one one day when I happened to have the opportunity to be in his um, uh, uh, presence um, and have a private moment, I said, hey, 
I just want to make sure we're cool. And he was like, of course we are. And that was that. So in other words, he was such a pro. Yeah. It was like, that was then. It was like, that was then. I'm a U.S. senator. Why would I care about what you did when I was trying to be a U.S. rep? Probably did a favor for him. (laughs) Thank you. Think about it. Think about it. Yeah. Think about that. It's it's true. He would have had to take more time. It would have taken him more time to ascend to the presidency. I don't think he would have ascended to the presidency. Well, that's true. I mean... Just let's pause to think about anyway. to be the 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 congressman from uh, the first congressional district on the south side of Chicago, which is such an identifiably black yes. district. Okay, yes. Yes. it's uh, the first black congressman. Right. I want to say so, and to, as opposed to being the senator from the entire state of yes. Illinois, yeah, yeah, which propels you in Iowa. Of course, he of lo- course. the people in Iowa loved oh, him, didn't they? They didn't loved they? him even more than they loved yes, you. Yes, they did. Yes, they. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. He would have had um, a much bigger challenge. He already, you know, had that huge race challenge. Um, uh, the hurdle of his um, of his race with, um, you know, white citizens uh, who were not progressive. And but he won them over in Iowa, didn't he? he oh, man. And I'll, oh, yeah. I'll go one step further. Yeah. In my humble opinion, and feel yeah. agree to uh, feel free to vigorously disagree with you want. Uh-huh. He won the white people over before he won the black people over, and then when the black people saw all the white people in <laughs> Iowa voting for Mama. <laughs> They voted for Obama. I swear to God. What are we missing? Maudlin, that's how it <laughs> went that, down. Is that the way you look at tra- it? Well, yeah, because, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of black people for Hillary Clinton. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Um, mm. you should talk to Delmarie Cobb about this mm. sometime, mm. The, the strategist from the, the city Yeah, of I know Delmarie yeah. very well. She's a regular She's a on friend. the show. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, absolutely, I believe that's how it went down. Interesting. Uh, and yeah. it's Iowa launch. Well, he faced his challenges in a black community. That's That's unspoken. He, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I don't know if it's exactly the way you say, but I do. But we can all agree that he had a little bit of an uphill battle at first with mm-hmm. the black community. Yes. Uh, and uh, but anyway, so then you came back to the Sun-Times. Then I came back after three years of doing um, uh, media relations for in uh, politics. I missed writing and I came knocking on the door and begging for my old job back. <laughs> and uh, I will just give a shout out to my uh, former editor, Don Hayner, who was kind of enough to say, well, we don't have anything, but I'll, I can give you a part-time three-day a, a week uh, uh, writing thing, if writing job, if you want to just start there. And and yeah, so, so I got here my you back are. and here I am. Um, all right. So let's talk a little about your, so that's, we're talking, well, goodness, if, if I'm doing the math correctly, you've been on a roll here 15 years, is that roughly about? So the first time around, uh, 10 to 11 years, and then this second time now, 14 years. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, work a working reporter in the city. Wait of a minute, no, you're right. If I came back in 2003, yeah, to 2019, in 16 that's years. 16 yeah. years. I'm way off. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just a brilliant wizard. You just math. are a math. What are you doing writing, man, in journalism? Why. You should be a. Okay. Did, did I tell you I graduated from <laughs> Evanston High School? Uh, why did you go to MIT? Yeah, I should have gone to MIT. I'm so good at math. I can add 15 in 2004. Uh, um, so uh, your state, your, your sense of journalism. Uh, I was. I remember we were on a panel together talking about this. Yeah. Uh, it was about a year or so ago, and right. when Eisendrath was still owning the Sun Times. Right. That's right. Or maybe it was two years ago. Anyway, what's your sense? Are you pessimistic, optimistic uh, about uh, the future of this profession that you've dedicated so many years to? You know, I'm optimistic because um, the industry is changing. Yeah, it's evolved, and and we've seen all the downsizing and constricting. But what I think we've seen is a survival of the fittest, um, and. And so, you know, those, um, and I'm speaking primarily right now about the print industry, Um, those newspapers and magazines that have survived are those who have been able to reinvent themselves and uh, to focus on what they do best and also find ways, new ways to, um, uh, you know, to to, to meet their their readers where they are, whether it's online or through event sponsorship or, you know, all kinds of innovative things are happening now. Um, So I'm optimistic that... uh, uh, the print industry will continue to evolve 
and and um, we'll continue to find ways to meet our readers um, and, and that there will always be that segment of the population that needs to feel it in their hands. I mean, like me, I've got to feel my newspaper. Come on, do you have a home subscription? Okay, yeah, right? I have a home right? Okay, all right, I bow down <laughs> because you're keeping me, you know, employed. Not only you, but this one. Okay, well, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't get a home subscription to them. And this one. Oh, Three of them. <laughs> okay, so we appreciate people Thank like you. you. Thank you, and, and, suckers and, and, like me. Yeah, no, no, you yeah. are like me. You know, there are people who need to feel that newsprint. I'm, I'm the same way with books. Yeah. I don't care how many audio, you know, tapes you put them on. I need that book in my hand. No, I'm with you 100%. I had a, uh, a guest there, a very nice lady, uh, Vanessa Bunger. She was here about Chicago Ideas Week. And I said, yeah. you, I need a cheat sheet for, of all the people that <laughs> yeah, are, gonna that are coming. Yeah. So yeah. She's, uh, she said, okay. And I knew she was a millennial. So uh-huh. I go, don't text me something. I want it on a piece <laughs> of paper. Because look, I can write notes. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know. And, uh, I it's know. Just, it's a generational We're thing. We're old school. Yeah, oh, I'm old guy. Yeah, no, I'm no. Old. You're young. No, I'm not. Um, all right, let's talk about some of the pressures that you would face at, any journalist, any black journalist in the city of Chicago faces, good God, uh, you're you're like people know you in a different way than they would know me. Do you follow right, what I'm saying? Right, They're right. like, oh, I'm looking to you to do X, Y, Z. Right. I mean, have you you must you must deal dealing with this for years and years now. Well, you know, Chicago is an interesting city, first of all, politically and 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 race, you know, racially. We we have our issues with race. We're very fra- we're very fragmented. We're very. Um, you know, so um, so because it's always been a city that struggles with race, and and blacks have always fought for their fair share in this city. At this point in time, Latinos are now you know the largest population. It's it's pract- it's pretty much one third, one third, one third. Mm-hmm. But it's predominantly for the um, the uh, majority of my career, it has been uh, blacks gaining in population and in um, uh, political clout. So. What I mean by all that is that when you have that kind of landscape, so then the black journalists become part of that that struggle, become part of that journey of a city, um, and 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 become part of that. Are there enough black reporters in newsrooms to cover? communities of color, you know, to cover black communities. Are there enough Latino reporters? Because now they're facing those issues, right? right? To cover their their stories in, in the newsrooms. So, yes, what that does is it creates that pressure for um, uh, journalists of color because they face a uh, a situation where um, their people are, are 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 in a struggle, in a journey, and therefore their people look to them to be part of that sol- that solution, to be part of the 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 uplifting of the community. Um, and so you're you're expected to 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 help. You're expected to give voice. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It just means that we as 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 journalists of color face added pressures and added commitment and added expectations and quite frankly have added passions passions you know that perhaps our our peers do not meaning i'm passionate about about making sure that i give voice to the voiceless amongst my people um because if i'm not in this newsroom many of those stories won't be told Mm-hmm. That's what the passion. We have added passions. We know there are fewer of us, and therefore we have to we have to make sure those stories are told. Uh, you're president of the uh, what is it? The National Association of Black Journalists. What kind of obligations, responsibilities does that bring with it? Well, um, you know that's what that's everything I just talked about is what the National Association of Black Journalists is about. It's about you know making sure that there are black journalists in newsrooms, not only in Chicago, but across the country. And so the national organization's mission is to advocate for diversity within our nation's newsrooms. That's it and that's all. And then in the mid, in, in doing that, it's all of the different, you know, aspects of it. Um, uh, uh, professional, making sure professional training is there, making sure, you know, that there are um, uh, uh, journalists of color in dis- not only in covering the news, but in decision making uh, uh, roles, because it's one thing to be to cover the news. It's another thing to decide 
who's going to go where where the news is going to be covered or do we get to go to Inglewood do we get to go to Gr- Auburn Gresham mm-hmm. do we care what's happening in Garfield Park yeah. so so we need journalists of color in decision making roles so that's what the organization's about and the local chapter is simply the local version of that yeah. and so I do that through um, you know I lead an organization that has monthly forums uh, with newsmakers where we confront the issues of the day that affect the black community and we uh, have monthly forums with um, uh, media managers at outlets throughout Chicago asking them and putting them on 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 um Putting them, you know, putting them in the spotlight mm-hmm. on what are their numbers, you know, what are their hiring numbers, um, what stories are they covering? So we simply advocate. And uh, I think one of the stories that you did, uh, some coming out of this theme, I want to make sure you were the one who wrote about the race riot of nineteen nineteen. Yeah. Uh, and when I think about that, it's it's interesting. That, of course, is the 100th year anniversary, so you wrote right. the story talking about it. Yeah. Uh, it began on uh, on the uh, beach on the near south side of Chicago. That's right. Uh, and, you know, Maudlin, it's not taught in the public schools. Nope. Uh, it's pretty much little for, known and much forgotten. Yeah. Well, so much of our history of well, race yeah. relations are just right? buried under the, just right? that story of South Commons, <laughs> the, the public schools of yeah. Chicago yeah. essentially squashing integration yeah. with a decision, which we will, I kind of want to do the deep dive now. What was motivating <laughs> them for all I know was inside political deal. This is Chicago. That's what, I, that's what, that's what Elaine said. It was, it was that it was all political. Uh, but anyway, so like, was it your idea to do that? Did, I mean, how did that story emerge? That- so, um, uh, before anyone else, and this is what we talk, what, what I'm talking about in terms of the reason why we have to be in the newsroom, why you have to have diversity in the newsroom before anyone else, you know, um, was thinking about the 1919 anniversary in March, I, um, uh, you know, was thinking about it and I started you know, asking around um, to see what people were going to be doing. I found out what I found out about the Newberry's uh, year-long initiative, taking a look at the 1919 riots, and I decided I was going to write about it. And then, in the process of writing that story, I found out about a 107-year-old woman who had survived the the 1919 race riots, and that was a huge find. Mm-hmm. And I did a story, you know, a front-page story that interviewed this 107-year-old woman and talked about this um, the history of the riots. So I did that in March. So whose idea was that? That was my idea. Now we come to the anniversary and the whole world is thinking about the 1919 anniversary. And so now my desk, my editors, as as editors across the city are saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I say, hey, as part of that story I did in March, I found out they had this bike ride planned um, that was going to uh, take folks throughout the South Side to all of these historic places um, uh, uh, during the riots. Uh, where pe- places that still stand today, where people were killed um, or where, where major events happened during that riot. Um, I'd li- I, I really wanted to go on that bike ride and I didn't do it. But, you know, hey, why don't I write about it? And so that was how that happened. Yeah, it was a great coverage. Thank I appreciated you. Uh, Thank you. It was the front page, yeah. I want to say, of yeah. uh, Sunday sometimes. I want to say it's at the top <laughs> of my head. Home delivered is always in my Home head. delivery. Uh, Thank my you. My beloved bright one. Uh, <laughs> are there any stories you want to... Uh, uh, talk about before I let you get out the door? Anything that you're working uh, on right now you want people to know about? Well, you know, um, I just want to um, uh, uh, do three shameless plugs. He's like, look, I just asked you if there was one. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the first shameless plug is uh, my book, my mother's memoir called Escape from Nigeria, mm-hmm. a memoir of faith, love, and war. It's currently available on Amazon, and it is a story of how my family um, uh, survived that grisly war uh, where two million died. Um, so please get my book. It's a, it's a great read, um, if I do say so myself. And then secondly, I want to plug NABJ Chicago is having its um, celebration of, as you mentioned earlier before we got started, you know Dorothy Tucker. Um, and she is the newly elected president of the national um, organization. Yeah. Were you going to say something? Yeah, Dorothy Tucker. <laughs> if you're listening, I have to try to get her on the show. Ben, I'm so busy. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. just so oh, yeah. busy. Well, now she's even busier. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, so anyway, okay, yeah. I'll, 
I'll give him. I'll, I'll, give her I'll pull her. I'll uh, pull on. I'll give her a pull up for you. I bet I'm just so busy. <laughs> Dorothy, you hear me talking about you, right? Okay. I'm talking about All right. you. All right. Okay. So, um, but we, um, NABJ Chicago is very proud that she is the second Chicago and only the second Chicago and ever to lead the national organization. The first being Vernon Jarrett in 1977 to 1979. Wow, the great Vernon the Jarrett. The great Vernon Jarrett. And he was a co-founder of the national organization. Yes. Vernon Jarrett. Wow. So we're very proud of that. And because of that, we're throwing a huge party, a celebration. It's called NABJ Chicago Celebrates Diversity. September 25, save the date. Watch uh, social media um, for the location and other deets. Um, but uh, we're, we're really going to have a, sh- a hashtag Chicago Proud celebration. And what was the third thing? And the third thing, I am also president of the Chicago Journalists Association. Man, I <laughs> you dues or something? And it's one of the <laughs> oldest organizations of journalists in Chicago. And Ben, I need you to join that. Oh, God. Okay. You don't have to join NABJ. I'd probably twist your arm on that, but I'm going to let you go on NABJ. Uh, well, but you got to join those CJA. Kids singing Young, Gifted, and Black. See? Right. Uh, but so. I have to say this, is that I'm kind of like one of those guys that as soon as they join a club, everybody else leaves. Oh, yeah, so. right, right. No, no, uh, no. And we have no dues, no membership dues oh. during our 80th year. So Both you, groups? Oh, no, just CJA. And what is the National yeah, Association? Yeah, no, just the Chicago Journalists Association. All right. But, uh, but wait, let me finish. So we have on November 1st our annual awards dinner. Right now we need you guys to enter your best work from the last year into the, the uh, Sarah Boyden contest and the Dorothy Stork contest and mark your calendars for November 1. We'll have to bring you back to uh, promote that one uh, and get people to show up. That's going to be, is it going to be a, uh, a luncheon it's or a something? It's a sit-down dinner, a November sit-down 1 dinner. in the evening. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Is Lori Lightfoot going to be there? You know what? I sure hope so. I just threw that out there. I just. Lori, <laughs> did you hear what he said? <laughs> uh, Lori's, by the way, for 10 trivia points. Yeah. Uh, Vernon Jarrett, who is his former daughter-in-law? What's her name? Jarrett. Oh, okay. <laughs> Valerie. There you go. Very good. Give I got that lady 10, 10 trivia points. That's right. Thank you, Robert Mueller. Uh, those 10 trivia points are redeemable at the next Chicago Journalist Association That's luncheon. Right. That's right. Uh, Lori Lightfoot will buy you a hamburger. All right? That's correct. Uh, that is correct. Thank you, Robert Mueller. All right, Mullen, it's been a blast talking with you. The pleasure's been mine. And uh, this is another Ben Jarofsky bonus show. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>